Someone asked me uh, a week or two ago what I was going to preach after uh, I got finished with 1 Corinthians 15. And I said 1 Corinthians 16. Apparently that person thought there was only 15 chapters in 1 Corinthians. But to be truthful with you, there's not much of substance in 1 Corinthians 16. The last chapter of the book, mostly final greetings. Uh, but the chapter does raise one significant topic. Giving. Now, to my knowledge, I have not preached a message on giving in years. I seem to have an allergy to preaching on this topic developed before I became a pastor. Did you know that there is medical evidence that suggests that early exposure to certain factors leads to allergies? Now, this is true. It's a medical fact. It certainly happened to me. Just after Jeannie and I were married, uh, we joined a certain local church that shall remain nameless. Uh, And unfortunately, through no fault of the pastor and unbeknownst to us, when we joined the church, the church had a humongous debt. And it seemed like the pastor preached on giving or stewardship roughly every other Sunday. He's trying to raise money to pay off this huge debt. And I think that early exposure to that kind of of regular preaching on that topic led to my allergy. And so I have a real problem preaching about giving, asking people to give. But that is the beauty of expository preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Allergy or not, I must preach what the Holy Spirit inspired. Whatever is next in the book. And so this morning we come to 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Let's read those verses together. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. In this brief passage, Paul teaches God's people how to give to God's work. Nearly every phrase, sometimes every word, suggests a principle. I don't know if you have ever picked green beans. I'm not much of a gardener, but once upon a time I had to take care of a neighbor's garden. And I didn't think it was that big a deal, but this neighbor had green beans. And she didn't even have that much. But if you've ever had to pick a a crop of green beans in, in you don't have to have many to get a lot of green beans. And that's what we have here. In these two short verses, there are a lot of principles. Verse 1 begins with the words, Now concerning, and those of you that have been with 
been with us through this entire book, you will remember that we have encountered these words repeatedly here in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back in chapter 7 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul wrote, Now concerning the things offered to idols. Over in chapter 12 and verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts. And now we come to chapter 16 and verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints. And if you'll remember, in each of these cases, Paul was responding to a question posed by members of the Corinthian church. Unfortunately, in none of those cases did Paul explain the question that was asked by the members of the Corinthian church. He only explained the answer. Now here in chapter 16, the answer concerns the collection for the saints. And since the Corinthians were asking about this collection, it's obvious that they already knew about this collection, this offering. 2 Corinthians indicates that Titus, a co-worker of Paul's, had visited the Corinthian church, asked them to participate in this collection. Apparently, Paul was taking this collection from all of the churches in Asia Minor that he had started. He was taking this collection for the mother church in Jerusalem. Um, we, think of the, we think of the church in Jerusalem as being this, this magnificent mother church, but you need to realize that actually Jerusalem was a, was a poor area. The Jews that lived in Jerusalem were actually supported by Jews that lived in other parts of the world. And in 46 A.D., less than 10 years before this, there had been a major famine in that area. And back in that day, people did not recover quickly from famines. And so... uh, the, the, the after effects of that famine lingered. And who would have been most affected by that? Christians were the persecuted minority, remember? There's nobody there that would help them. Where were they going to get help? Not from anybody in Jerusalem. They were going to get help from Christians outside of that region, which was exactly what Paul was doing. So Paul was taking up an offering from churches outside of of, uh, the Judean area for the church at Jerusalem. And apparently, the Corinthians were seeking practical advice on how to gather this offering, and Paul was giving them practical advice. And I find this really Interesting, because there was no mind in the world at that point that was more theological than Paul's mind. And yet here, we find out that Paul could be very practical when he needed to be. And here, he is being very practical. He tells us, quite simply, how to give. He outlines four principles. Christians are to give purposefully, systematically, individually, and proportionally. 
And I won't repeat those right now. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat them as we go through them. All right. So first of all, we are to give purposefully. Christians are to give purposefully. Twice in these first two verses, Paul mentions the collection. In verse 1, he calls it the collection for the saints. We need to look carefully at that word that's translated collection in our English versions. It's an unusual word. These two verses are the only place where this word is used in the entire New Testament. The word means an extra piece of giving. It means giving over and above. Uh, We would call it a special offering today. Now we need to read between the lines here a little bit. The fact that Paul used this word for this special offering and had organized it for the needy mother church in Jerusalem implies that the church in Corinth regularly took offerings for its own needs. So Paul implies here that it is right and good for a local church to take regular offerings for its own needs, and it's also right and good for a local church to take special offerings for special needs over and above its regular offerings. So the implication of this verse is that there are two good and right purposes toward which faithful and obedient Christians will give. First of all, Christians will support the churches that support them. Christians will support the churches that support them. Earlier in chapter 9 of this book, Paul outlines the principle that ministers of the gospel should be supported by the people of God. 1 Corinthians 9.14 states, Even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel, or they should earn their living from the gospels, how another modern version puts it. In that same passage, Paul cites the maxim, The laborer is worthy of his wages. So it's right for members of a local church to pay the preacher who labors to preach the Word of God to them. And if you expand on that a bit, it's obvious to most people that if a local church is feeding them spiritually, is supporting them spiritually, is protecting them spiritually, then they have a a responsibility to support that local church financially. Now in Paul's day, most churches met in homes. In fact, if you go down to the end of this chapter, you'll find that Paul at this point was preaching in a church that met in the home of Aquila and Priscilla. Now, there aren't very many churches today that meet in people's homes. They may have small groups that meet in people's homes, but very few local churches in our country, in our culture today, meet in people's homes. Almost all local churches today have buildings, okay? And so if a local church has a building, then that local church also is going to have to pay the 
light bill and the gas bill, and they're going to have to pay the mortgage. They're going to have to pay for the insurance on the building. They're going to have to pay for upkeep on the building. So all of that, the, the, the church is going to have to give, the people in the church are going to have to give toward all of that kind of thing. And then, of course, I'm not the only minister of the gospel that, that the people here at Midway give toward. We give toward a minister of the gospel in Haiti and toward a minister of the gospel in Ecuador and toward a minister of the gospel in Cambodia and toward a minister of the gospel now in, in uh, Thailand, Lebanon. We could go on and on. We find that example in Scripture. And so part of what we all give toward is, is supporting ministers of, go- of the gospel around the world. And next Sunday in the second service, we're going to have an annual business meeting and we're going to approve a budget. And that budget is filled with all of these things. And sometimes we think that an annual business meeting is not a very spiritual thing. But that's what Paul's talking about here in in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. This is part of our responsibility as God's people, is to make sure that we give to these things. But it's also obvious from the fact that Paul was taking a special offering for needy Christians in Jerusalem that there is a second purpose for which every Christian ought to be giving. Christians will give to the needy and especially to Christians who are in need. Giving to those in need is a responsibility of all believers, first of all, just as individuals. Simply person to person. Because we are commanded. What's the great commandment? What's the first great commandment? To love the Lord our God. What's the second great commandment? To love others as ourselves. In 1 John 3, 17 and 18, John assures us, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so Paul says, look, if we don't meet the needs, if we don't give to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we may talk a good game, but our claim to love is not real. Paul also talks about this more than once in the New Testament. In Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So that's just on a personal level. We all have that responsibility. But then the church as a church cared for the needs of poor believers, needy believers, since the beginning of the church. What do we find at the beginning of the book of Acts? Yeah, all these believers were selling property. Why? What had happened? 
You had all of these, all of these Jews that came to, to Jerusalem for Pentecost and they got saved. And many of them decided to stay there because this was the only place they could hear the Word of God at that point. And many of them didn't have livelihoods. By the way, I think this was also where some of the poverty came from. And so to meet some of those needs, people were selling property. They were, they were giving to try to meet those needs. But even that, that was kind of an emergency situation. But then once the church got organized, you get to Acts chapter 6. Then what happens? Then the church begins to do what the old Jewish synagogues always did. They begin to care for the widows. And it's systematic. And in fact, they they have to elect deacons to take care of this. Is that something that just the church in Jerusalem did? No, you, you, you get Paul's letter to Timothy. Who's, who's Timothy? Timothy is, is Paul's young protege in the pastorate. And Paul essentially writes a church manual to Timothy, how to, write, how to run a church. Well, Timothy, part of running a church is taking care of widows. And he tells them which widows you take care of and which widows you don't. Did you know that that was in Paul's church manual? And by the way, Paul didn't just write in 1 Corinthians about this offering. He wrote two entire chapters about this offering in 2 Corinthians. How many of you have ever heard a preacher preach on giving and quote the verse, God loves a cheerful giver? You know where that verse comes from? It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And most of the time, that verse is quoted to make you give to the church. But in context, you know what that verse is about? That verse is about giving to meet the needs of needy Christians. So why have we as American Christians so de-emphasized this kind of giving. If you'd like to hear the answer to that question, come back in the second service this afternoon and we'll discuss it, okay? But let me give you one answer. Social security. See, the average American Christian looks around and he says, I don't see any widows that need support today. Are any widows in my church that, that you know, that, that lack? I don't see any orphans in my church that aren't being taken care of. Like, that's the government's job. And so it's real easy for American Christians 
to say, you know, in my community, in my church, we don't have needy Christians. So this is not a thing. Let me ask you this question. Where were the Christians that Paul was concerned about? Were they in his church? Were they in his country? No. Paul was looking at a church in another country. Let me ask you, are there believers in other countries where there is no social security that have needs? Wow, you betcha. Now, how exactly is what, what exactly is the best way for us as American Christians who have it better than 99.9% of the people who have ever lived on the face of the planet, how we ought to try to meet those needs? That's another thing we'll discuss in the second service. But this is part of what, one of the purposes for which we as believers ought to be giving. So we are to give purposefully. And then in verse 2, Paul outlines a second principle for how we're to give. We're to give systematically. Systematically. Paul says, on the first day of the week. This is one of a handful of verses in the New Testament that indicates that from the very first days after Jesus' resurrection, believers set apart the first day of the week for worship. In particular, in Acts 20, when Paul gathered to worship with the church at Troas, it was on the first day of the week. Then those of you who were here on Wednesday night for our our study in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, we learned that John saw his vision of Jesus Christ on the Lordian day, in the original language. The Lord's day. And it seems obvious from the context there that, that John is speaking of the first day of the week, the Lord's day. And Paul here adds the testimony of another witness. He asked the Corinthians to take care of this special offering on the first day of each week. And I believe that when he says here that they are to set it by in store, I I believe that the, the meaning of the words here is that they are to bring it into the storehouse of the church. Not that they are supposed to put it in in some storehouse in their in their house. That's that's a ridiculous idea for many of the, many in the Corinthian church. Why would he say this and then say so that there be no collection when I come? Why would he tell them to store this at home so that there be no collection when I come? So I think the idea here is that they were supposed to be bringing this into the storehouse. The treasury is the word there. The treasury of the church. And they were supposed to be doing that on the first day of the week. And so Paul here was was very definitely connecting, and this is important, he was connecting giving with worship. 
So what Paul says here to the Corinthians applies in two ways. All right. First of all, believers will plan to give on a regular schedule. Believers will plan to give on a regular schedule. Now, many of us give based on when we're paid. If, you're, if we're paid twice in a month, we give twice in a month. If we're paid once a month, we give once a month. And, and all that's fine. I, I actually like the idea, and, and I'll explain why in a, in, in a few minutes. I like the idea, even, I'm paid bi-weekly, I like the idea of having something to give every time I come to church because Paul connects it to worship. But whatever you decide on, you need to have a plan to give on a regular schedule. This should not be something that's catch as catch can. Well, I give when the Spirit moves me. Let me ask you, how does the Spirit move? The Spirit moves through the Word. Okay. And so the Spirit teaching us through the Word means you and I ought to be giving systematically. We ought to be giving with a plan. Let me come at this from a different angle, but, but say the same thing. One of the reasons that I dislike the idea of putting pressure on Christians to give with big emotional peels and big fun drives is that it shouldn't work. Now that surprises some of you to hear me say that, but it's true. Christians shouldn't give because there's some big emotional appeal. Christians shouldn't give because the preacher gets up and says, rah, rah, rah. Christians ought to give because they love Jesus Christ and because God's Word says give. And I know many of you do. Because I don't get up here and say, rah, rah, rah. And we don't have big fun drives here. one of the reasons I'm irked when I am the target of gimmicks. Walmart has a gimmick right now every time you check out. Every time you check out, it, it flashes up a screen that says, do you want to round up your, do you want to round this up for charity to the nearest dollar or the nearest five dollars or just whatever you want to give us? You know why they do that? Because for many people, that's the only way to get them to give with the gimmick. That ought never be the case with a believer in Jesus Christ. That the only way to get them to give is with a gimmick. We ought to give because we love Jesus Christ. And our hearts overflow with gratitude because of what He's done for us. And because of that heart of gratitude, we give in a planned, scheduled way. No high pressure, no emotional pitches, no need for that. But what Paul here applies in a second way. By tying our giving to the Lord's Day, Paul ties our giving to worship. And so believers will intentionally make their giving worship. Uh, to paraphrase Paul, 
in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all that I have and do not worship, it profits me nothing. And this is difficult for us here at Midway, folks. Okay? I just talked about having a plan for giving. And, and part of my plan for giving extends all the way to putting that plan into action with my bank. And I know some of you do this as well. I have Midway Bible Church as one of the vendors on my bill pay, and my bank sends a check to Midway Bible Church every week like clockwork. That's part of the way that I give systematically in obedience to the Lord. But there is a big downside to that. It makes it really difficult to make my giving worship. But the same downside really to some degree applies to, to the offering box. Now, I love the offering box, okay, because it, it, it means that we don't have to take five minutes out of the service for the offering. And it means I get to preach five minutes longer. So I love the offering box, okay? But there is a downside to the offering box. It makes I think it makes it more difficult for us to make our offering worship. It's one of the reasons why we normally have an offertory prayer. It's to try to give us a, a, a time to focus and to actually lift our offerings with our hearts to the Lord. So let me, let me talk a little bit about why we need to make our giving worship or, or how we can make our giving worship. No, number one, first of all, our giving must always be a response to the gospel. So when you stand at that offering box back there, you have your offering in your hand, you ought to preach yourself a little gospel message. Okay? You ought to stand there and say, you know what? I deserve nothing but an eternal hell. And this little wad of money in my hand cannot buy me heaven. Jesus Christ died for me. He's why I'm on my way to heaven. And Lord Jesus, I love you because of what you did for me. And I'm giving to you right now out of a heart of love. Lord Jesus, I love you and I give to you because I love you. I give to you because I want people to know about you. Lord Jesus, how thankful I am for what you've done. You worship as you put that in. That's what you and I need to do. We need to do whatever we need to do to make sure that that giving is worship. And then I'm way behind time, so I'm going to move on to my next point. In verse 2, Paul lays down a third principle for giving. We need to give individually. Paul says, let each one of you. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody gets a pass. Let each one of you. Let me speak to three specific cases very quickly. First of all, married couples. Now, married couples are one flesh, according to Genesis 2. But that truth goes beyond a sexual reality 
They function as one unit financially. In financial matters, they are one unit. I deal with this, with this matter in premarital counseling. Every couple that I marry, they need to be making decisions financially as a unit. And one of the things, one of the things that they need to do as a unit, one, things, one thing that every couple needs to do as a unit is make decisions about their stewardship financially. They need to acknowledge that God gives them everything that, that they have. And they need to acknowledge that by determining how they're going to give in a planned way. From the very beginning of their marriage. And if they will do that in a planned way, if they will give in a systematic planned way from the beginning of their marriage, God will, will, will honor them for that. You can't outgive God. And then a natural follow-up to that, let me talk about children. Nobody gets a pass. Not even children. This is a principle that parents need to teach children. In our materialistic society, children learn very quickly what money can buy. They learn very quickly the value of money. So it's also a parent's responsibility to teach each child that he or she is a steward. That God created everything, that God owns everything, and that God just lets us use certain things for a while. Can, can a child understand those things? Yes, a child can understand those things. And one of the ways that we tell God that we believe that that God created everything and God owns everything and He just lets us use things. Is by giving back to Him. This is a huge way that we make God real in a child's life. You think about it. There are not really any. There are not really very many intersections that challenge the faith of a child. Most the faith of most children stays childlike for a very good reason. Faith is like a muscle; it has to be exercised. And very few children is their faith exercised. I mean, what is there to exercise the faith of a child? Sometimes there's a, a death of a beloved grandparent. Sometimes the death of a pet will do this. But there's not really a whole lot to, to exercise the faith of a child. But I believe that parents need to teach children to give. I believe it's actually a good idea to teach a child to tithe. And I'll talk more about this in a little while. Every, every dollar, a dime of every dollar, ought to go to... To, to God. I ought to go to the church, into the church offering, go to a missionary. There ought to be a special bank. It's not just parents that ought to go to the offering box back there. Children ought to go to that offering box. See, putting the challenge of tithing before a child demonstrates, it makes obvious whether that child really believes whether that God is there. That God owns everything. That God created everything. It's a challenge to that child's faith. 
And so often we fail to put those kinds of challenges before children. Do you know that a 10-year-old can build an idol in their heart just as easily as a 50-year-old? You better bet they can. And parents need to challenge those idols. And then the last group are the financially challenged. You know, I... I've heard some Christians who argue that when you're financially challenged or you're in debt, then you shouldn't have to give. I've heard I've heard Christians say, "Well, as long as I'm in debt, I, I, you know, I should be trying to pay off my debt until I get out of debt. Then 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 I'll start to give." Well, you know, there's a real problem with that. Let me ask you, were, 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 there, were there really poor people in the Corinthian church? If you, if you understand what I've been saying to you, remember, remember when we talked about what was happening at the Lord's Supper? There were haves and have-nots. Yeah, there were definitely have-nots in the Corinthian church. Did Paul say, let everyone give except the have-nots? No. And by the way, if, 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 if being in debt is an excuse not to give, there are some people who never give because they'll never be out of debt. So even when you're financially challenged, and here's the challenge I would put, put before somebody who, who is financially, here's the challenge I would put before somebody who's financially challenged. God's promise, Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given unto you. You want to see God's promise kick in? Then give. At one point in my life, I was dreadfully in debt. It took my breath away when I thought about it. I'm not supposed to confess this kind of thing. Pastors are never supposed to ever be in that. And I prayed and I held on to the Lord about it. I cried out to Him about it. I did everything that I could to get out of debt. But I'll tell you one thing that I never even thought about doing. And that was quit giving to the Lord. Give and it will be given unto you. God is faithful. I wonder at times if God did not take me and my wife through that time to test us to see if we would continue to be faithful, continue to give as we had always given. God is faithful. You cannot outgive Him. And then a final principle from verse 2. Give proportionally. As he may prosper, Paul says. And I like the translation of the, the Good News Bible, in proportion to what you have earned. And the Net Bible says, to the extent that God 
has blessed you. Now the question is, what proportion should a believer give? Well, that's a tough one. And we may talk about this more in the second service today as well. We know from numerous texts in the Bible that Old Testament saints gave uh, at least a tenth of their income to support the work of the the tabernacle and later the temple. A tenth is, is, uh, is called a tithe. And while there's no commandment, no direct commandment in the New Testament that a New Testament believer is to tithe, many believers that a new many New Testament believers believe that we ought to give at least as much as an Old Testament believer, if not more. And so many believe that we ought to give at least a tithe, uh, if not more than that. And so many, I know many of you, that's that's what you give. But here, here, here's a warning that I would give you. Many people, many, many Christians have the idea that the tithe belongs to God and 90% belongs to, to me. That's a really, really erroneous way to look at it. 100% belongs to God. And I give 10% to God as an acknowledgement of the fact that all of it belongs to Him. I return 10% for him to actively use, but the rest of it's also his. And here's what I would here's what I would challenge you. If God is particularly prospering you, remember, Paul here says, as he has prospered you. If God is particularly prospering you right now, maybe that 10% isn't enough. I think sometimes we as American Christians, we, we, we think in very cut and dried terms when perhaps if God is really prospering us at a particular time, you know, maybe it's time to take that up. Maybe next year it ought to be 11%, and the year after that it ought to be 12%, and the year after that 13%. Who knows how high we could go? See, most people don't think that way. The way most of us think is, well, next year I could buy a boat, and then the year after that I could buy this, and then the year after that I could buy that, instead of thinking, the year after that, maybe I could do this for God's work, and the year after that, God would enable me to do that. As God has prospered you, so I would lay that challenge before you. And I, I would also put this before you. Proportional giving um, works very equitably. So for a person who is, is financially challenged, who is not making a great deal of money, that tithe works out to be a, a very little money. I remember the days when, when, when I had my first job. My first job was as a newspaper boy. And I still wish, I still wish to this day there were still newspaper boys, that, that, that a, a 10-year-old boy, a 12-year-old boy could get a job as a newspaper boy. 
I think I, I think I probably made maybe a hundred bucks in a year back in the day, and and so making a hundred bucks in a year, the tithe on that was ten bucks. Somebody, a, a couple today that makes a hundred thousand dollars a year, what's their tithe? A thousand times that much. It's equitable. It's a proportion. It's a percentage. And so that kind of proportion works out equitably. And that's a biblical plan. And then one more reminder. That proportion should be taken off the top. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The way I like to think of it is that God ought to get His before Uncle Sam does. And whoever that guy is named FICA, I figure out who he is yet. Now, I need to close. I know I'm past time a little bit. I need to close by saying that I know nothing about how any person in this church gives. That has been a principle that I have held to since the first day I became a pastor. I believe pastors should be kept ignorant of of personal financial records, whether they are good or bad. I don't want to be influenced one way or the other by what any of you have given. But I will say that I know, because of the overall giving of this church, that many of you give faithfully. Uh, You give purposefully and systematically and individually and proportionally, and for that, as your pastor, I'm very thankful. But there are always those who need to be challenged. And so perhaps there's a parent here who needs to to commit to, to train a child. Perhaps there's someone here who needs to take that challenge that I outlined just a minute ago to, to increase. You've always tithed and you've never really considered a, kicking that up another percent or two. What does God want you to do? How you respond to this message, I'll never know. Literally, I will never know. But what's the Holy Spirit leading you to do as you would respond to this message?